The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The question we need to answer about the ascension is this. Why were the disciples joyful? Well, Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I bet you can think of times you were glad, you were joyful, when someone left. Guests who have overstayed their welcome, your parents who are embarrassing you in front of your friends, It's not that you dislike them necessarily, but they're kind of in the way. And when they're gone, you're glad. But that's clearly not how the disciples felt about Jesus. He wasn't in the way. So why were they joyful when he left? You'd expect quite the opposite. Maybe you even got that sense when the Paschal candle was snuffed out during the Gospel. It feels like the party's over. You've blown out the candles and opened all your gifts and eaten the cake. You've said your goodbyes, and now all that's left is a mess to clean up. It's all kind of a letdown. What is there to be joyful about? It's worth noting that this is not the first time that someone has been carried up into heaven. Maybe you remember the story of Elijah and the chariots of fire. Elijah was God's prophet during the reign of the wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. At the end of his career, he'd trained up a successor, Elisha. They would be big shoes to fill, but Elisha had asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit so that he could go on with the work of preaching God's word. But while they were talking, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two men And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then Elisha took hold of his clothes, and he ripped them in two. That seems like a fitting reaction. Elisha is not glad that Elijah has gone to heaven. And neither are the other faithful folks, the sons of the prophets, who come by and say, Look, Elijah has disappeared. We need to go find him. Perhaps he got swept away by the Lord to some mountain or into some valley. Maybe that would have been a more fitting response from the disciples. Jesus has disappeared before. 
Maybe they should go looking for him. Maybe they should try to find him so they can help him to restore the kingdom to Israel now. But there's a real problem with searching for Jesus. You cannot find him unless he reveals himself to you. Jesus told his disciples what to do, to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the Spirit. So if they go searching for Jesus, they would inevitably be looking where he cannot be found. Now I want to pause here for a moment to talk about this notion, this notion of searching for God. It's a really common thing, whether we know it or not, because we are always looking for something to fear, love, and trust. The problem is that when we look, we are often looking in the places where the true God cannot be found. What you find instead is a substitute, a God with a lowercase g. The most obvious culprits, the most common gods that we find when we go looking, are things like money and status and health and comfort. Those are the things that evoke our trust. And so we search them out, and we grasp them, and we cling to them. Devotion to a job or an education, devotion to sports or friends or family or fun, devotion which puts those things first, which seeks those things at any cost, that's religious devotion. The allure of those idols is that you actually do find what you're looking for. You receive your reward. And the momentary satisfaction of earthly pleasures makes us think that we've found what we need. But still, you have not found God. You've found instead an idol crafted in your own image. Now, some religious endeavors, some attempts to find God, are a bit loftier. Devotion to virtue is very attractive because it seems to transcend the fleeting things of this life. But... Even when you try to find God in the very best and noblest things, things like justice and goodness and order and beauty and even love, when you seek to find God in those things, in this sinful world, you do not find him. But this shouldn't surprise you because you know what the world and your own sinful flesh say about the true God, that he is unjust and can't possibly be good, and that his created order is oppressive, and that the cross is dreadful and ugly, and that those who speak God's word are unloving. You cannot find God by devoting yourself to virtue. You'd be searching for God where he does not want to be found. It's like the folks of Babel who thought they were getting closer to heaven by building their tower into the sky. Searching for God is a fool's errand, even when it seems like the holiest thing. But the disciples, they'll have none of that. When Jesus ascended into heaven, they didn't go looking for him. Instead, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We still have to answer that question. Why were they joyful? The answer is in what Jesus did for them just before he left. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He opened their minds, and they saw that the very same Jesus who had been born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, who had descended into hell, and who rose from the dead on the third day. That very same Jesus was present with them yet in his scriptures and in the words that he had given to them. They saw that he, who is the eternal word incarnate, who spoke in the beginning to create the heavens and the earth, who took on flesh and blood to speak forgiveness and peace to creation, who taught the crowds and healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead, that same eternal word was present with them, speaking to them in the gospel of his death and resurrection, even after Jesus ascended to heaven. What Moses said to the people of Israel so long ago now took on new meaning for the disciples. Moses had said this, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? Or who will descend into the abyss? For the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Jesus was as near to the disciples in his word as he was when he was walking among them. And that is why the disciples could be glad. Although it appeared that Jesus had left them, he was still there, present as he had always been in his powerful, saving, life-giving word, his word that they now believed. Yet a little while, he said to them before he left, yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That sight is the sight of faith, the same sight by which you see that the water of baptism washes away sin, the same sight by which you see that the bread and wine are Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the sight of faith that comes by hearing the words and promises that Jesus continues to speak to you, even now. The disciples return to Jerusalem and they're joyful because they don't need to go looking for Jesus. You don't need to go looking for Jesus. He is as near to his church, as near to you, as he was near to the disciples while he was on earth. As St. Paul prayed for the Ephesians, you have had the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In the words and promises of Jesus, you have the one triune, all-holy, almighty, and eternal God, not in unapproachable light, but in the word of truth in the gospel of your salvation, in mercy and forgiveness. The disciples return to Jerusalem and they're joyful because they've been brought into the life of Christ. Notice what they saw when Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures. They saw his suffering and death and resurrection foretold, but they also saw repentance and the forgiveness of sins proclaimed to all the nations by their witness. In this world of desperate need, in this world of grievous sin and death, in this world that seeks God where he cannot be found, the disciples are given the honor and privilege of proclaiming the revelation of God's mercy in the flesh and blood of Christ Jesus. So of course they're glad. Of course they rejoice. Let us also rejoice and be glad. For we too see him by faith.
we too have been brought into the life of Christ. And we too are also now his witnesses. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.